0: And if if the chair hadn't hauled you up, then I would have had a more poignant object lesson to teach you (laughs) as well. But what does radical faith look like in a person? What does a person with radical faith do in their life? What kinds of things do they say? How do they live? And is it more important for your faith to be strong or for the object of your faith to be strong? Well, in the case of that chair that you were sitting in, it's most important that the chair be strong. Radical faith is the topic and one of the themes in the passage that we're looking at this morning, and I'm going to come back down and get my Bible so I can read it to you. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark, the book of Mark in the New Testament. Mark chapter 5. beginning at verse 21 in Mark chapter 5. Follow along with me. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. Pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us the gift of faith, even as we hear your words spoken to us this morning. Help us not to fear, but only believe. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the big idea that runs throughout this passage this morning is that Jesus gives hope to the hopeless. Jesus gives hope. To the hopeless. And there's going to be four points in the sermon this morning. Jesus welcomes desperate interruptions. Jesus welcomes desperate interruptions. Jesus makes us clean, Jesus rewards faith in Him. And Jesus gives life to the dead. I'll repeat those as I walk us through the passage. We're coming out of a section in Mark's true account of Jesus's life and ministry, where Jesus had taught the crowds with parables about the kingdom of God. But privately, he would gather his disciples, those that were following him closely, and he would explain everything to them. So to those on the outside, he taught in parables. To those on the inside, he gave the explanations and the meanings of his teaching. And last week we saw Jesus show his unlimited power, his unlimited power to all those who had joined him in boats to cross the sea. He had calmed a storm simply with his words. Just after that, they had landed on the other side of the sea, and out of the tombs had come a man, a very fearsome man who was actually filled with thousands of demons. His name was Legion, and Jesus had cast all of these demons out of him. Jesus had freed this man, showing unlimited, unparalleled power. Those were particularly desperate situations, both of them, and the people that Jesus encounters in our passage this morning are just as desperate and without hope. Now, if you look back in verse 21 we see that Jesus has crossed back over the sea. He's beside the sea, which is a familiar place with, uh, for Jesus and his teaching. And he has a great crowd that's gathered around him. And then he's interrupted by a desperate man. That's the first point in the sermon this morning. Jesus welcomes desperate interruptions. And Jairus is this man's name, we're told unlike many of the other people that Jesus healed or cast demons out of, we're not told their names. But this particular man, we are told his name. And we're told his role in the community as well. He's the ruler of the synagogue. Now, we don't know exactly why Mark recounted that to us. Perhaps it was that they were back in Capernaum, which was a familiar home base for Jesus and his disciples. And maybe they knew, or maybe Peter knew the uh, ruler of the synagogue by name. And we know that the account that Mark gives us is largely Peter's recollections of Jesus' life and ministry. So maybe that detail was included because Peter knew him. But a ruler of the synagogue had a special role in the community. The ruler would have been in charge of the upkeep of the building, the synagogue. He would have been in charge of making sure that the scrolls of scripture were there to be read, He would have been in charge of arranging the services, including who would read the scrolls, who would pray, who would preach, much like what myself and the pastoral staff at Covenant Hope Church do when we plan out our services in advance. Well, this man who obviously had regularly exercised lots of responsibility, held lots of uh, responsibilities that he carried out with great effect, now he's desperate And as soon as he sees Jesus, he falls at his feet. You'll remember that Legion fell at Jesus' feet as well. He's desperate just like Legion was desperate. And he begins to implore, it says, or beg is what that means. And he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Parents, you know what it must have felt like for Jairus. I mean, there's nothing more... then what we want is we want our children to be healthy. We want them to be well. And when there's a child that you have that's sick, it makes you feel desperate. It makes you feel desperate. And especially for a child that perhaps is slipping towards death and maybe none of the treatments have been working, perhaps some of you even know what that's like. There's desperation that sets in. There's a hopelessness that begins to take over you. And Jairus had a position of influence, a position of power in the community, but it was of no help to him in this situation. So power and influence, power and position can't cause disease to go away. We'll be reminded of that as 2017 draws to a close, and you'll get online and you'll go to your favorite news outlet And in all likelihood, they'll have some story that recounts the death of all the famous and powerful people from 2017. None of those people could use their power or their influence or their fame to avoid death. Each one of them would have used their power or their influence if they could to extend their lives, and yet they couldn't. But Jairus knew about Jesus. Jairus knew what Jesus could do. He must have believed that Jesus had the power to make her well. He says just that when he comes to Jesus. And so he interrupts and he begs. And Jesus goes with him. What compassion Jesus is showing him. But that's not the only interruption that Jesus encountered that day. So on the way to Jairus' home... The great crowd is following along with him. Mark tells us that they thronged about him. I imagine it being this really chaotic scene, like a great big disorganized parade with Jesus right at the center of it. He's the main event. And then an unnamed woman who's been bleeding for 12 long years interrupts with an urgent rush to touch Jesus. We regularly speak about God's sovereign control of the universe here because it's all throughout the scriptures. Last week we saw Jesus speak to the storm, to the wind and the waves and cause them to to be peaceful, to be stilled. Jesus taught his disciples that there wasn't a single small bird that would fall to the ground without God's knowledge or control. And it's easy, knowing those truths, to begin to imagine what it's like for God to be in control of everything. We can't even control our own schedules, and so we can't wrap our minds around it. You know, when things get busy, no matter how, we use our, how much we use our smartphones or our online calendars or our to-do lists, we forget things, don't we? Things get out of control. We have our limits. And when that happens, Interruptions are often unwanted for us. I mean, we just can't handle it. You know that feeling, don't you? And so we can begin to think that if we're busy and we can't handle interruptions when we're trying to control our own lives, surely God can't or doesn't want interruptions himself. He's got far more things to do, far more important things to do, you know, like keep the sun hot or make sure that the planets continue orbiting properly. But God is not like that. God is not like that at all. He is a God of tender mercies for anyone who trusts in him, for anyone who believes in him. This God can be interrupted by anyone who cries out to him. He's always listening. He always cares. He welcomes your approach to him. He delights in it even. Those who trust in him get his attention when they cry out to him. And even when your situation doesn't immediately change in response to your prayers, he's close by. He knows what you're going through. He's attentive to you. Don't make a mistake. God loves you. God welcomes your interruption. Now, the second interruption in our story wouldn't have even been an interruption if it weren't for Jesus halting the hurried walk to Jairus' home in order to find out who touched him. He could have just let it happen. He could have just kept walking, even knowing perhaps that power had gone out from him. And that brings us to our second point, which is Jesus makes us clean. Jesus makes us clean. The woman that's described beginning in verse 25 had been living a personal nightmare For 12 long years. She had a discharge of blood that would not stop. And anyone who had a discharge coming from their body, any Jew, whether it was a blood or another fluid, was considered unclean. So in the book of Leviticus, in the Old Testament, in chapter 15, God had outlined what would happen if any of the Israelites had a discharge the consequences were very, very significant for them. Anyone who touched them became unclean until they had bathed and waited until sundown. Anything they laid on or anything they sat on became unclean and must be watched. And anyone who touched that unclean object would become unclean and must wash and be unclean until the end of the day. Clothing that they touched became unclean until it was washed. So being unclean meant that you could not approach God in the temple and you would be isolated from others as they tried to avoid becoming unclean because of touching you. Any woman, of course, would have been unclean at least one week per month. Can you imagine what that was like? These cleanliness laws, what it was like to deal with them in your life? If you were this woman and you were constantly unclean for 12 years, can you imagine the loneliness, the shunning by family and friends, rarely experiencing the touch of another human being? Always careful about who you touched and where you were. And every time you turned around, something else needed to be washed to be made clean. And the more that this woman tried to find healing for her circumstance her situation the more she suffered she'd spent all her money on physicians who didn't make her any better she had become poor because of it and her physical condition had even gotten worse but look in verse 27 with me it says that she had heard the reports about Jesus she believed them even she believed that if she simply touched his garments she would be made well and so she took action She risked venturing out into the crowds. Of course, as she made her way through those crowds that were thronging about Jesus, she would have made everyone who touched her unclean if they had known they would have been angry with her. She was risking that anger of everyone. But when she touched Jesus' garment, it made her clean. She felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. The Old Testament laws about uncleanness and purification were meant to point the Israelites and us as we read the scriptures to our need for the cleansing of sin. We as Christians live under the new covenant. We don't have to obey these cleanliness laws that are in the book of Leviticus, but they're meant to teach us a lesson about the uncleanness that's in us. Our inner uncleanness is caused by sin and it is far far worse than the uncleanness that she experienced or anyone else for that matter would experience it's a great great burden that we carry around in our lives this inner uncleanness caused by sin do you know that feeling of every time you turn around you see sin in yourself do you know that feeling You think you've contained it, and then it breaks out in another area of your life. We have so much sin that we we grow numb to it, don't we? We try ignoring it. We try rationalizing it. We try excusing it. We say to ourselves, if I just don't pay attention to it, maybe it will go away. We say, it's not as bad as that person's sin, Or maybe we say, okay, I just need better management techniques. We can get this under control. But just like the woman who tried unsuccessfully to deal with her uncleanness with these physicians, and she only got worse when we try to cope with our sin in any other way than God's way, we end up making it worse, and we suffer for it. Only Jesus can touch the unclean. And, become, and not become unclean himself. Instead, he cleanses anyone from their sin who trusts in him. That's the power of Jesus. Jesus makes our hearts clean. He washes away the sin in a moment when we turn from our sin and we look to him in faith. For those of you who are not Christians, I wonder what you do with this burden of sin in your life. Surely you recognize that you fall short of even your own standards of behavior at times in your life. Certainly you would understand then that you would fall short of God's standards of behavior. What do you do with that burden? Just like the woman had heard the reports about Jesus, here in Covenant Oak Church, we're giving you a report as well. Jesus makes us clean. Jesus makes us clean. He forgives. He cleanses us. Look to him in faith. We urge you. We encourage you. Well, at the moment of her healing, Jesus likewise understood that power had gone out from him. Look at with me at verse 30. It says that he perceived in himself that power had gone out from him. And so he stopped and he asked in the chaos, who touched my garments? This is one of the strangest passages in the Bible, I think. (laughs) Kind of hard to understand. And yet it's right there. The disciples are frustrated because there's so many people that are touching him. How could he ask such a silly question? They seem to be saying to him. You know, Jesus could have let this go. I mentioned that earlier. He could have let her walk away healed, but without a personal encounter with himself. But Jesus wanted to affirm her. Jesus wanted to let her know what it was that had led to her healing, that it wasn't necessarily magic garments that he wore, but it it was the power that he had in himself, the power to make people clean. And despite her fears of being exposed as someone who made the teacher unclean from her touch, the woman comes forward, and she falls down at Jesus' feet, much like Jairus did. Will he rebuke her? She must have wondered. She was trembling, it says. No. No. Jesus commends her. Jesus commends her. And his affirmation of her is the next point this morning. Point number three, Jesus rewards faith in him. Jesus rewards faith in him. We don't know how public his affirmation of this woman was, but at least we know that the disciples heard it. It's recorded here for us, maybe even more of the crowd. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Faith is no more effective, no more powerful than the thing that our faith is placed in. The woman's faith was in Jesus. She was moved to action. She was moved to obedience. And God rewarded that by her healing. You know, it's, a, it's appropriate here to stop and talk a little bit about the difference between a biblical and an unbiblical view of faith and physical healing. I've spoken in sermons before about the teaching of various Christian leaders that argue that God intends his people to always be healthy and even financially prosperous, and it's important to comment on because these ideas are so popular. They're everywhere you look. If you try to watch Christian television, it's likely that you're going to hear this kind of teaching. Many churches in Dubai teach these doctrines important to not be seduced by these ideas because oftentimes these teachers mix truth with error. And so everything that they say isn't necessarily false, but the whole of it is stained with the falsehood. So Kenneth Copeland, for example, a prosperity teacher, writes this about faith in one of his books. Faith is a spiritual force, a spiritual energy, a spiritual power. It is this force of faith which makes the laws of the spirit world function. There are certain laws governing prosperity revealed in God's word. Faith causes them to function. I believe that this is false. Joel Osteen, for example, encourages people to repeat certain phrases and words to themselves to change their life. He tells them to repeat to themselves, and this is a quotation from one of his books, I am blessed. I am prosperous, I am healthy, I am continually growing wiser. This is just like using magic incantations. The focus of faith is not oneself, but God. That's what the scripture teaches. That's the biblical concept of faith. The idea in Osteen's teaching is that if you can build your faith up enough then you can move God to do things for you. You can force his hand, so to speak. He has to obey because you have strong faith in that case, they would argue. So the prosperity teachers turn faith into a spiritual force that's directed at God rather than believing in Jesus and his power to actually accomplish things. But the Bible says over and over again that many people who had great faith, they suffered greatly. Consider Job in the Old Testament. He suffered greatly. He, he suffered the loss of his children, his servants, his health, his livelihood, but he still trusted in God. Joyce Meyer is another of these prosperity teachers, and she teaches in one of her books that it was Job's negative thoughts that brought disaster upon him. That's not what the Bible teaches. There's a new movement of prosperity teachers that's gaining more and more influence. It's based out of a church called Bethel Church in California. And a little over a year from now, they'll be holding a big conference here in Dubai. You might hear a lot about it from your friends, maybe people that you work with that uh, are Christians. You should stay away from these teachers. Now this woman had suffered for 12 years and when she reached out to Jesus in faith, Jesus' healing restored her. I want to I give you four biblical truths about suffering and faith. Four biblical truths. Number one, suffering in the world comes as a result of sin in the world. Suffering in the world comes as a result of sin in the world. In the beginning God created the world and it says in the first two chapters of Genesis that it was very good it was perfect but when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord the Lord cursed the creation he cursed the ground and suffering and pain entered into the world and so all suffering is ultimately because sin is in the world now sometimes we suffer because of our own sin bad decisions that we've made sinful decisions Sometimes we suffer because of other people's sin. They sin against us and and hurt us or wound us in some way. Sometimes it's simply suffering because we live in a sin-stained world. Accidents happen. Natural disasters happen, and people die or are hurt. Number two, it is good to pray for an end to suffering for ourselves and others. It's good to pray for an end to suffering for ourselves or others. It's good and right to God ask to end either our suffering or the suffering of others. We do that regularly here in this church in the pastoral prayer. I prayed just this morning, if you listened carefully, for those who are sick in our midst. I prayed that God would heal us, those of us who are sick or facing surgeries or other medical procedures. I prayed that God would act miraculously to heal all, e, all of us, every single one of us. In the book of James, uh, he tells those who are in the church there that if they're sick, they would should ask the elders to pray for them for healing. Paul prayed that a, a certain thorn in his flesh would be removed by God. On Monday of this week, two of our members are going to be having really big and important surgeries. We should pray for them that their surgery would be successful. A number of people in our church were in the hospital, in fact, in this past week. I prayed for them, and I hope many of you who knew of it perhaps prayed for them as well. It is good and right to pray for an end to suffering and for ourselves and others. Number three, God can use suffering for his good purposes, though. God can use suffering for His good purposes. Sometimes God uses suffering in our lives to warn us of approaching danger. Sometimes God uses suffering to remind us that we should repent of sin. Always suffering is a reminder that we should repent of sin. Sometimes God uses suffering in our lives to equip us to serve other people in their suffering. Perhaps we've gone through some type of suffering and we've been comforted by the Lord in that. And he's equipped us then to reach out to them. And with the comforting that we've received from the Lord, we comfort our brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes the gospel is advanced when non-believers see Christians suffering well. They take notice, they wonder why this person is strong, and trusting in the midst of suffering and they ask and we have opportunity to give a reason for the hope that's in us. One thing that God can do through suffering of course always is to cause us to rely on him. When we suffer we turn to the Lord. And then number four we should remember about suffering that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered. Our God suffered. Jesus went through intense physical and spiritual suffering, and for Christians, when we suffer, we have fellowship with him, and that helps us, and he helps us. It says in the book of Hebrews, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. But we should remember always that we're not just identifying with Jesus because he suffered, Jesus' suffering accomplished something that our suffering cannot accomplish, and that is to satisfy and absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. Jesus was a substitute. When Jesus suffered, he took the punishment that we deserved. So even though God may use suffering in our lives to discipline us out of his love for us, we will not be punished for our sins, those of us who trust in Jesus. Well, this woman had faith in Jesus' ability to heal her, and Jesus rewarded that. So faith is trust in God and his promises, and it will always be rewarded by God, sometimes with miraculous healings, miraculous deliverances, and sometimes with the strength to endure. I don't know if you remember that passage in Hebrews that Jason read to us. Even in that passage, it talks about people of faith people who trusted in the promises of God and lost their lives immediately because of their steps of obedience. Jesus always gives us peace when we turn to him in faith. Just as he said to this woman, go in peace. Well, remember that Jairus is standing right here and witnessing what Jesus is interacting with this woman about. As he commends the woman, this woman is a model of faith to Jairus in spite of his fear. Jairus would need to keep her example in his mind when the messengers arrived from his house with bad news. And that brings us to the final point. Jesus gives life to the dead. Jesus gives life to the dead. Look back with me at verse 35. The news arrives that Jairus' daughter, has died. And it's too late, they say. No use troubling the teacher. But Jesus ignores them, and he turns to Jairus, and he says, don't fear, only believe. And then he selects only three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, to go along with Jairus. And when they arrived, they're greeted just inside the house by the sounds of people weeping and wailing and These, of course, would have been professional mourners during that time. And in that culture, people would have paid money to have people come and publicly make a show of mourning the death of a family member. It sounds strange to us, but that's the way it was in that culture. And we can see that they're not genuinely mourning because Jesus asks them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And what do they do? They immediately turn from weeping to laughing. Well, that's the sign for us that they weren't genuinely mourning the death of this child. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus puts them outside the house, and he takes only his three disciples and her mother and father, and they go into the room, the inner room, where the corpse of the young girl is. Do you remember what Jesus said about the parables back in chapter 4 of Mark he said that he spoke to those on the outside in parables but those on the inside they are given they were given the secret of the kingdom Jesus was speaking to these mourners in a parable she's not dead she's merely asleep But the five who joined him on the inside of the house would be witnesses to the secret of Jesus's unlimited power. He takes the hand of the girl's corpse, which would have made someone unclean if they touched it, and he told her to arise, and he called her back to life. It was as if she were simply asleep. And she got up, and she began to walk around the room. This is by far the most amazing miracle that Jesus has done so far here in the book of Mark. And this small crowd of three disciples and her mother and her father, as it says, they were overcome with amazement. They were blown away. I mean, the disciples had seen Jesus heal countless people. They had seen him calm a storm. They had seen him cast out thousands of demons from a man. And they're blown away. Jesus finally charges them not to tell anyone what had happened. And with great compassion, he tells them to get this little girl something to eat. (laughs) They're so stunned, they don't know what to do next. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve that if they ate of the forbidden fruit, they would surely die. And they did eat it. And you and I live under the cloud of our impending death even today. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is the ultimate statistic. One out of one die. You and I will die unless Jesus comes back first. Not only do we face physical death, but the Bible teaches that because of sin, we're spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But Jesus is the creator of all that has life. He is the word of the Father who in the beginning said, let there be, and there was. He gives life to the spiritually and physically dead. It goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In the face of our impending death, we're hopeless. We have nothing to counteract death. Our sin makes us unclean before God, who is holy and righteous, and to stand before him in our uncleanness is to invite his wrath upon us. But Jesus gives life to the dead. Jesus gives life. He gives hope to the hopeless. Are you trusting Jesus for the healing of your sin sickness? Are you trusting him to wash you clean? Just like he said to Jairus, Jesus says to you, don't fear death, only believe in me. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you that from before the foundations of the earth were laid, you were putting into motion the plan to defeat death. You were putting in motion the plan to send your son, Jesus. To have him to take on a human nature, to be born as an infant, just as we've sung this morning in many of our songs. Lord, we praise you that you came into our world, that you experienced pain and suffering. Pain and suffering with a purpose. The purpose of identifying with our wretched situation in life and for the purpose of paying for our sin. Lord, we praise you. We praise you that you raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Spirit, and you will raise us by the power of the Spirit as well. Father, I pray that you would help us to not fear, but only believe in you. In Christ's name, amen.